Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon and welcome to Empowering Family Caregiver Show on Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by eCareDiary.com. Today we will talk about the role of Medicaid in long-term care planning. To help shed light on this, I'm very pleased to introduce our distinguished guest, David Kuttner. David is a partner in the New York elder law firm of Lamson and Kuttner, which has offices in Manhattan and Westchester. He is the author of the first chapter in Elder Law Client Strategies in New York, published by Thomson Reuters. He's also the author of a soon-to-be-published book entitled What to Do When You're Old and Sick and They Want to Take All Your Money, an Elder Law Attorney's Practical Guide for Seniors and the Disabled. David, thank you so much for joining us today. Happy to be here. Thank you. We have so many questions for you, David, so let's just get right to it. Um, okay, I great. Begin with the percep- yes, I want to begin with the perception everyone has about long-term care. There is this sense that long-term care is going to be very expensive. Can you tell us exactly how much it costs and how do you pay for it? Yes, well, of course, it depends where you are in the country because the prices are going to differ depending on where you live. Um, I know most about the New York market, of course, because that's where I am. And around here, uh, to give a few examples, nursing home care might run anywhere from $15,000 to $20,000 a month. And, uh, you know, who can afford to pay for that uh, unless you're in the, you know, upper 1% or something that most people uh, are going to be broke trying to pay those kinds of expenses. Uh, Even home care, uh, which around here is going to be about $20 an hour. uh, And, you know, if you're need eight hours a day or 10 hours a day or 24 hours a day, it really adds up fast. So these kinds of expenses are, uh, you know, are real budget busters and and deplete people's life savings. Uh, now, if you're in another part of the country, another part of the state, um, the prices are going to be less, but, uh, you know, incomes are maybe less also. So I think the the costs may be kind of proportional in the area where you live. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. very, very expensive. And uh, to the second part of the question, how do you pay for it, there are really only three sources of payment. Uh, One would be your own money. Uh, Two would be long-term care insurance if you have any, and most people don't. Uh, And number three would be Medicaid. I see. Now, can you tell us about the eligibility criteria for Medicaid and how do you get it? Yes. Well, uh, you know, you have these two big government programs, Medicare and Medicaid. Um, They're often confused because the names are similar. Uh, So Medicare, which, you know, most uh, seniors are going to have, which you'll get at age 65, 
uh, or if you've been uh, disabled for two years or more, is medical insurance. So hospitals, doctors, rehabilitation. Uh, what Medicare does not cover is long-term care. Uh, Medicaid, on the other hand, does cover long-term care, but the eligibility is different. Uh, Medicaid is a means-tested program, which means that you have to qualify financially. Now, if you're under 65, you have new rules uh, that come from the uh, Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. Uh, and essentially, if you could look at your tax return at the line that says modified adjusted gross income, and uh, if that number puts you at uh, about 138% of the federal poverty level, uh, which is not a lot of money, it's uh, probably around uh, $13,000 or so, uh, you'd be eligible for Medicaid. Now, if you're 65 or over, uh, you need to qualify based on um, standards that are going to be set in your state that look at your assets and, in some cases, your assets and your income. Uh, in New York State, our standard is total assets of no more than $14,550. Now, that's not per month. That's your total assets uh, all in and you need to count everything, your bank account, your savings account, your mutual funds, your savings bonds, your cash value of insurance, everything gets counted. Uh, so it's a, it's a pretty uh, tough standard to meet in the sense that you need to have little money to be, uh, little money in property to be eligible for Medicaid. And, and uh, New York is is probably the most liberal state. You know, other states around the country, the standard may be as low as $2,000. So um, that's what they mean by means-tested. Mm-hmm. Now, is there anything I can do to get on Medicaid if I have too much money or too much income? Yes. Now, that's a very good question. Uh, you know, a lot of people uh, look at these Medicaid standards and they say, oh, gosh, you know, I, I, I just have too much money or I've got too much income. Uh, I'm never going to be eligible for Medicaid. So they just kind of ignore it and, and, uh, and move on. And, and that's a shame because there are really uh, a lot of things that you can do uh, to make yourself eligible if you're someone who needs long-term care or is about to need long-term care. Um, now, what you want to do is think about uh, kind of restructuring your financial holdings. So you might think about transferring money to children. You might think about transferring money to uh, a trust, which is a, an entity that you could set up to hold your money separate and apart from you. Um, you know, the difficulty about this kind of planning for some people is that you have to put your money in your property outside of your control, and you have to give give up that control to someone uh, in whom you have confidence, you know, such as a child or a sibling or 
someone who's close to you, uh, either that they'll hold the money separately for you or uh, be a trustee of a trust that you set up. Uh, so, you know, that's a difficult decision, I think, for anyone. Uh, but if you're someone who's at the point where, you know, your long-term care expenses are going to start depleting and eating up your life savings and maybe putting your home in jeopardy, uh, mm-hmm. the choice becomes a little bit easier, I think. Uh, so um, oftentimes it's a choice that people will make um, when they get to the crisis point, you know, where they uh, mom or dad uh, has a fall and breaks a hip and is taken to the hospital and or maybe they've got pneumonia or some other serious disease and when they're ready to to be discharged everyone realizes they can't be on their own anymore and uh and then they start inquiring about how you know how how to pay for long-term care and they realize how expensive it is so mm-hmm. it's easier it's easier to make the decision at that point that you know, you're willing to give up some control over your your money and your property, I think. Mm-hmm. Now, can you tell us a little bit about the five-year look back? Uh, you know, there are certain assumptions related to that. Uh, one of that is that it prevents you from transferring your money and getting on Medicare. Is that true? Well, what happens is the the look back... What that means is that Medicaid wants to take a look at all of your finances and your financial transactions over the five years preceding the time that you file your Medicaid application. And the reason why they do that is they want to see whether you have given any money away, whether you've transferred your money to somebody else. Uh, in order to become eligible for Medicaid. And the theory is that, you know, if you're just spending your money and you're paying your living expenses, then, of course, that's your business. But if you're going to start giving your money away and transferring it to someone else, then that's money that you could have used to pay for your care. And if Medicaid finds that you have gifted money or transferred money, uh, then it's going to impose a penalty on you. And a lot of people are afraid that they're going to get sued or the person that they gave money to is going to get sued or they'll get in trouble. And, you know, that's not the case. But what Medicaid does, and it's a very powerful remedy, is simply to say you're not eligible So uh, for a mm-hmm. certain period of time. So, for example... Um, Let's say, you know, you had $100,000 and uh, you gave that money to your son or your daughter to uh, essentially hold for you and use if you needed it. Uh, And then you applied uh, to Medicaid to pay for your nursing home expenses. Well, Medicaid would see that gift or that transfer and say to you, well, look, uh, you just transferred $100,000. We're not going to pay for your first nine months or your first 10 months in the nursing home. You're not eligible. So then 
you know, you with your family or whoever you're, who's involved with you there would have to figure out how to pay for that privately. Now, one of the points that I think is um, uh, a little bit confusing for people and is really important to know, uh, at least in New York, uh, is that the five-year look-back applies only to Medicaid nursing home applications. So if you're somebody who is looking for uh, home care or for assisted living, then the five-year look-back would not apply to you. So in those cases, you're really free to make transfers of money or property to family members or into a trust without any penalty or prejudice. So that's... um, you know, one of the first things that we look at as as elder law attorneys is, you know, what is the client's uh, medical condition? What is their prognosis? Uh, Can they be properly cared for at home or in an assisted living facility? Because that allows us to do the kind of planning where we can protect all of their money and uh, and get them uh, Medicaid services at the same time. So I think people I need to be aware of, you know, when and where does the five-year look-back apply? It doesn't always apply to the situation that, that you're in. I mean, it definitely is going to apply to nursing home, but, um, uh, again, in New York it does not apply to the other Medicaid services such as home care. And if you're in another state, uh, I think it would be well worth your effort to find out exactly what the rules are. And I think, you know, mm-hmm. in the format of this show, we can't start doing a, a survey of the 50 states, but, you know, I think it's enough to know that the five-year look back could result in a penalty period, nobody's going to get sued, and you ought to see uh, when and where it applies. Great. Can you tell us a little bit about trust? Um how do they work, and do they help in protecting money and property if uh, Medicaid is involved? Yes. Well, you know, I think that uh, that uh, trusts are the real workhorses of our uh, of what we do. Um, you know, there's there's really never. A, I hesitate to say never, but I think there's really never any time when it's a disadvantage. Uh, uh, there's always an upside and and really never a downside. Uh, You need to think of a trust as as just one of those entities that that we create, uh, like a corporation or a a partnership or a limited liability company. It's it's an entity, and it's an entity separate from you. So if I create a trust, uh, let's call it the David Kuttner Trust, and let's say I own a home, and the deed to my home says that David Kuttner owns this home. Well, if I create a trust and I prepare a new deed and I transfer ownership uh, of my house from David Kuttner to the David Kuttner Trust, then I don't own that home anymore. The trust owns it. So that's a very valuable concept, I think, because once I've moved my house or my money or my shares of stock or whatever it is that I own uh, 
um, I don't own those assets anymore. And if I've transferred enough out of my name and put it into the trust, then I get myself down to the Medicaid eligibility level. And I can say, well, you know, I only have $10,000 left. I'm eligible for Medicaid. And if anybody says, well, what about that house there that you're living in? I can truthfully say, well, you know, that's not my house. That house belongs to the David Kuttner Trust. Uh, and the nice thing about a trust is uh, it's not going to cause any problems. You know, a trust uh, isn't going to get a, into an automobile accident and have a creditor or <laughs> get divorced or die or, uh, you know, do any of those things that that uh, all of us as as natural persons, uh, we're exposed to those risks. A trust is not. So a trust offers a great protection against future creditors, including Medicaid, right? Because uh, if Medicaid thinks I have an obligation, they can't come to the David Kuttner Trust because that isn't me. That's something else. That's a separate entity. Uh, and... The trust, like a corporation or you know a company, uh, goes on. It's not dependent on uh, on me or anybody else. You know, there's a trustee, and if that trustee uh, dies or is otherwise un unavailable, there's a successor trustee, and if that one's unavailable, uh, then there maybe there's a second successor, or the or a court would appoint a successor, um, and. There are other advantages. I don't know how much time we have, but uh, trusts also preserve some important tax advantages when uh, mm -hmm. people uh, transfer what we call low basis property uh, into it, and then that property uh, ultimately winds up in the hands of a beneficiary. Uh, that beneficiary will avoid capital gains tax on the increase in value that occurred over uh, over the lifetime of the person who created the trust. So to give a specific example, let's say I bought my house uh, 40 years ago and I paid $12,000 for it. And today my house is worth uh, $600,000. Well, I've got a huge um, unrealized capital gain, right? There's been a big increase in value. And if I sold my house, uh, I would then realize that capital gain, and I would have to pay tax on it, and I'd have a pretty big tax bill. But if I put my house into a trust, and I made my son or my daughter or both of them beneficiaries of that trust, and they inherited the house through the trust, they wouldn't pay any capital gain tax on the increase in value that occurred during my lifetime. So that's another, um, another I think, valuable feature of, uh, of a trust. Um, you know, I don't, again, I don't know mm -hmm. how much time we have. A trusts are a big topic, but I think those are maybe the main things. They're an important tool mm -hmm. in, in creating Medicaid eligibility. Uh, they protect against... Uh, future creditors, and uh, they offer significant tax advantages, and uh, they provide for continuity of management. So 
So uh, mm-hmm. lawyer, lawyers like trusts a lot. You know, they've been used for many, many, many years, uh, often for estate planning for wealthy families, but uh, they have a great application for really anybody, and uh, they're used extensively in elder law practice. And, and I think, as you can see, even from our brief discussion, that they're extremely useful mm-hmm. uh, in our in our practice. Good to know, David. I'm glad you've uh, you know shed light on some of these finer points because we have a lot of questions only related to trust. So thank you for sharing um, you know as much information as you could within this period of time. Um, my next question to you is in two parts actually. So um, the first part is about ways to protect income. And the other part is about how, um, you know, when the spouse is involved, is there any way to protect um, him or her financially? Okay. Well, uh, the first part on income. Uh, income, uh, as I said, is not a factor in in New York and I think many other states in eligibility, but it doesn't mean that it gets ignored. Um Medicaid has uh, uh, standards of what you know what level of income uh, you know you're allowed to have. Now, in New York, as an example, currently, if you apply for Medicaid in the community, so that means you're asking for home care or assisted living or basic medical services, uh, you can have no more than $829 a month in income. And if your income is greater than that amount, then Medicaid would consider that you have excess income. So let's say, again, to use the same example, you had $1,829 a month in income, let's say from your Social Security and your pension. So in that case, you would have $1,000 excess. Now, for Medicaid, under Medicaid's rules, uh, if you have excess, you should contribute that excess amount to the cost of your care. So if you are enjoying $5,000 a month worth of home care services, then you should contribute your $1,000 of excess income, and Medicaid would pay $4,000 for the rest of it. But... Uh, if we're smart about this, we'll do something called uh, we'll create something called a pool a pooled income trust. And the pooled income trust is a special kind of trust that is designed to protect your income, your excess income, if you're applying for Medicaid. And uh, the way it would work is this kind of trust is managed uh, by uh, a nonprofit organization, uh, and they're at least in New York. There's several of them. They're usually quite large, and they manage uh, thousands of these pooled income trusts. So you would have an account, and you would contribute your excess income every month to your pooled trust account, and then the trustee of the trust uh, would use that money uh, pursuant to your directions. Uh, to pay your bills. So you could pay your rent, you could pay your utilities, you could buy food, you could 
really do anything with that money as long as it's for you. And the only restriction uh, that's put in there, and it's kind of the job of the trustee to oversee it, is to make sure that the money is being spent on you. So you can't give it away and you can't pay your children's school tuition or do things like that. But as long as you're spending it on yourself, uh, it, it works very well. It's really a great, uh, a great opportunity to protect your income in a situation where you would otherwise be required to spend it. So that's what typically we would do uh, in really every case where <coughs> one has, uh, has excess income. Um, but be aware that it doesn't work if you're in a nursing home. If you're in a nursing home, then uh, you need to turn over all your income to the nursing home. That's your contribution, and you'll get to keep uh, about $50 as a personal needs allowance, and uh, the rest of it will go toward the cost of your care in the nursing home. So we can't do anything about that, but if you're living at home, if you're living in, assisted, in, an, in an assisted living facility, then uh, be aware that your income can be protected. Okay, so now what about the spouse, which was the other part of your question? Uh, that depends a little bit on where you live and what the rules are in your state because um, while Medicaid is subject to federal law, uh, Medicaid is a kind of a partnership between the federal government and the state governments, and uh, every state has an awful lot to say about its Medicaid program. Uh, a lot of discretion is given to the states, and which explains why you know, they're so different. Uh, New York happens to be very, I think, liberal and generous. We spend an awful lot of money in New York uh, on, uh, on all of these programs. Um, many other states spend only a small fraction of what, uh, of what we spend here. It, it really kind of differs around the country. And the policies about spousal protections different, differ as well. So you have um, spousal refusal states and you have spousal share states. So in a spousal refusal state, which uh, New York is one of those that allows spousal refusal, uh, what would happen is if one spouse needs care, then that spouse would transfer all of his money or all of her money to the other spouse. And when that's done, the spouse who needs care is left with a small amount of money that makes that person eligible for Medicaid. And now the other spouse who has all the money, uh, you know, Medicaid is going to come to that spouse and say, and say, well, look, you know, you, you're married to this person. You have an obligation of support. Uh, you know, maybe you should pay for the nursing home or for the care that, uh, you know, that your husband needs. And if you say, well, okay, I, you know, I recognize that, but uh, I'm getting on in years myself, and I just, uh, just don't think I want to do that anymore. So uh, I refuse. That's spousal refusal. And mm -hmm. if that happens, 
then Medicaid has no choice but to provide care to the spouse that needs care. All right? So if you're with me so far, you know, let's just uh, mm-hmm. make this a little more concrete. You know, the husband's in the nursing home. The wife has all the money. She stays at home, and she refuses, all right? So Medicaid has to take care of the husband and pay the nursing home bill. However, uh, Medicaid has the right at, uh, to come to the wife and say, look, you know, we've been taking care of your husband, you have a legal obligation here. Uh, we would like to have you contribute at this point. And, uh, you know, that's that's the tricky part. Uh, but what I could say to you and I guess say to our audience is that uh, it really is possible to negotiate with Medicaid a bit and probably come out with um, less than 100 cents on the dollar kind of solution. And in, in any event, mm-hmm. you're going to get a discount. Uh, and the reason for that is that Medicaid can only ask for reimbursement of the costs that it actually incurred. So if your husband's in a nursing home that costs ten that costs fifteen thousand dollars a month, uh, but Medicaid is only paying that home ten thousand dollars a month, uh, Medicaid can only ask for reimbursement of the cost that it incurred. So you just got a $5,000 a month discount because you mm-hmm. wind up paying the Medicaid rate rather than the private pay rate. So I hope everybody I followed me on that. Um, you Absolutely. Know, the, you know, it was and, very clear, and, David. Thank you. So in the, you know, in the worst-case scenario, you're going to pay the Medicaid rate rather than the private pay rate, and the Medicaid rate is mm-hmm. always going to be significantly less. And uh, in a better scenario, which is often the case, um, you'll be able to negotiate something even better than that. And if you're really lucky, your case may just fall through the cracks, and some of them do. Uh, So uh, in in the spousal share states, though, things are more difficult because... Uh, There's no opportunity to refuse, and the assets of both spouses will be considered uh, for both eligibility purposes and contribution purposes. But, look, uh, there's still a a, a floor uh, beyond which Medicaid cannot go. Um, There's what's called the Community Spouse Resource Allowance. Um, So, you know, you... They they can't ask you to contribute. Uh, you know, in New York, it's about seventy five thousand dollars if you get down to that level, and you're the spouse who's living in the community, the well spouse. Uh, they can't ask you for any uh, any further contribution. And uh, depending on the total assets, uh, the protection may be much higher. It may be somewhere around one hundred and twenty thousand dollars. Great. Thank you, David. Unfortunately, you know, we have time only for these many questions. Um, I want to let our audience members know that David is uh, going to be part of our expert Q&A um, series, and uh, he will be answering the remaining questions through the expert Q&A section. Um, so I will give information about that at the end of the show. Uh, but first, I would like to thank you very much, David. It's been an absolute pleasure having you as a guest today. Well, thank you. I enjoyed doing it. Thank you very much. 
Um, I want to let our audience members know that um, they can learn more about David um, and the work that he's involved in um, by visiting his website. It's www.lamson-kutner.com. That's L-A-M-S-O-N-C-U-T-N-E-R.com. Um, I'd like to thank our audience for tuning in today. Join us next time in the new year on Tuesday, Jan 13, 2015 at 2 p.m. Eastern for our Caregiver Speak radio show. This is hosted by our caregiving expert, Marjorie Papps, and she will be discussing updates to the Affordable Care Act with John Mills, co-founder of eCare Diary. To learn more about eCare Diary and our upcoming shows, visit www.ecarediary.com. That's where you will get more information about the expert Q&A series also. Registration is free and gives you immediate access to your personal care diary tool. You can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. My Twitter address is ecare underscore diary. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, David. Thank you. Bye-bye. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.